You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Hi, everyone. I'm Jennifer O'Blon, U.S. Assistant Managing Editor of the Financial Times. Welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Today, we're here to explore the economic state of Black America. As with many aspects of American life, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic disproportionately impacted BIPOC communities. For Black businesses, this meant closing their doors and for Black workers either being laid off or made to work in unsafe conditions. In a system where Black workers are proportionately overrepresented in low-wage work and sharply underrepresented in executive positions, this negative impact is exacerbated. Joining us is a panel of experts who will share their visions for true economic justice and mobility in the Black community. First, McKinsey and Company's Shelley Stewart III and Michael Chua, Chewy are co-authors of the recent report, The Economic State of Black America, What Is and What Could Be. Dr. Kirsten Brody is a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and professor of financial economics on leave from Dillard University. And finally, Jeffrey Wallace is CEO and president of Leaders Up, an organization bridging the divide to create an inclusive anti-racist economy. Before we start, I would like to remind the audience that if you would like to ask us a question, please ask it in the chat or comment section. We will try to get through as many questions as possible towards the end of the program. Now let's get started. Let's, think, let's kick things off with Shelley and Michael. In creating your comprehensive report, you both broke down the key issues contributing to racial disparity as well as the racial wealth gap. Let's talk about these and other findings and you both again, uh, wanted to do the economic lens of the economic roles individuals play as workers, business owners, investors, consumers, and residents. Shelley? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, for having us. Uh, we, we really wanted to take a holistic look at the way individuals participate economically. And so, as you said, we, 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 we developed this, this role um, this role framework, which is not comprehensive in the sense that it's not the only roles that folks play, but we think it does a good job of covering many of the critical roles. And I, I think one of the headline findings is, which is maybe not surprising other than the magnitude, is that disparity materializes in, an, in a very meaningful way across all of the roles that Black Americans play in society. If you just take something like the worker role, which is really, really critical if you're thinking about the wealth gap because you got to earn income that is above your expenses to be able to save and invest. We found a $220 billion annual wage gap. So if Black Americans had their fair share of the wages that are paid in this country, that number would be $220 billion higher. And that is that that comes from a, a range of factors from having you know jobs that are entry level and not progressing through the funnel, being in the wrong mix of occupations uh, and being underpaid within occupation. And so we just found substantial opportunity in that role uh, as well as the other roles. Now, I'm just going to throw out a statistic. 
uh, one statistic that jumped out at me, some 3.5 million Black families have negative net worth due to debt, while an additional 4.3 million have net worth of less than $10,000. And conversely, only about 340,000 Black American families have net worth about uh, above $1 million. Uh, Michael, can you speak to that? I mean, I think one of the remarkable things, and you know, Shelley and others, uh, and other colleagues had actually published on the racial wealth gap before. At, at the median level of households, there's an eight to one ratio between you know white median household wealth and black median household wealth. What's remarkable, though, as as part of this study, we actually graphed the entire distribution of wealth uh, within the U.S. economy, uh, and there is a, 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 a huge disparity, as we've discovered. But as you were pointing out, there are literally people in this country, and, and as a percentage, far more black households, which literally are negative with regard to debt. But if you actually look at the curves, in fact, what's interesting or, or, or uh, interesting is not, not the right word. What, what's very challenging about our entire economy is that the most common wealth, both for black families as well as white, white families, is zero. Now, a far higher percentage of black families are at zero, but a very many white families are also at zero. And so when we talk about challenges, you know, anything you can do to help people who have low wealth is disproportionately going to help black households, which is terrific. It's also going to help many other um, uh, families and people within America. Now, I'm going to throw the mic to Kristen. Uh, your recent Brookings article about the impacts of the coming eviction crisis are an appalling realization about the flawed system that forces paycheck to paycheck living. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court yesterday uh, ended the pandemic-related federal moratorium on residential evictions imposed by President Joe Biden's administration. What's your reaction to this, Kristen? So I guess as I, as I think about voting... I don't remember ever voting for a Supreme Court justice, right? These aren't people that we elected. And if you think about how they get appointed, um, Clarence Thomas, I believe, is the only um, Supreme Court justice that was appointed by a Republican president that was elected by the popular vote. All right. And so as we look at these these Republican appointed, mainly um, Supreme Court justices, that got rid of the um, eviction moratorium, this is hurting the very people that voter suppression hurts as well, right? So we have voter suppression, which means that basically black and brown people are the ones that are generally affected by it. Um, likely low income, unable to, to get off work, to go and vote. Um, these are the very people that are gonna be affected by this eviction moratorium, right? So I think that's something to think about, that it ties back to voting. And we need to focus on voting so that we can elect presidents that are going to put people in the Supreme Court that are not going to cause people to lose their homes, be on the, the streets maybe, or having to live with relatives or in congregate settings in the middle of a pandemic, because all that's going to do is exacerbate the pandemic, especially with the Delta variant. So we're actually seeing a vicious cycle take hold. Yes. Jeffrey, well, I, think it's I think it's important that, uh, you know, we pull the lens back and the report does a great job of this, like looking at the basic needs that African-Americans as residents need. Um, and at the end of the day, 
um, there is an opportunity, I think, for us to really engage um, corporate America and the private sector differently around how do we really boost up the quality of life um, of African-Americans so that they can also thrive and work, thrive as an entrepreneur, thrive also as a saver and, you know, investor. But it all starts with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, the basic needs that contribute to human development, access to broadband, housing, quality food. The report does a great job of going through those dimensions. But at the end of the day, what's really challenging is that the public sector services or those social safety net services are being provided, like, you know, that are exemplified through policies like the eviction moratorium are really not serving African-Americans. And more importantly, if we look at the data, they're causing more disparities or harm than actually accelerating folks. So I think there's an opportunity for us to really think about how we transform um, our approach to this work. And instead of providing safe social safety net strategies, opportunities that actually catapult folks and, and catalyze wealth creation and well-being. Shelley, I think you and I talked about education and how this has to really be reconciled, first and foremost, stemming from education. Can you speak to that? I, you know, I can look at the facts and apply some common sense and realize that we have made a decision in this country to fund public education in a way that exacerbates disparity. If we choose to tie the quality of education to the starting wealth of a set of people, then you will perpetuate inequality indefinitely. And we can, we can choose to make a different choice and say, where we have communities of talent that is waiting to be harnessed and to be supported and invested in, we can unlock that human capital and the returns on those dollars, this has been proven out time and time again, is exceptionally high. And so I think we really need to focus on how we help educate the masses of people who are being underfunded and undersupported. You should not have to be wealthy to get a good education in America. Michael, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, this is another, um, another overall research finding that we discovered in uh, the resident role. And so, as Shelby's pointing out, local funding of education, which in this country we, we celebrate in the sense that, you know, that therefore your local community can have an influence on how your children are, are educated, actually does have this regressive effect. If you actually have, you know, lower property values or you know, whatever it is your local um, uh, education funding comes from, it is going to perpetuate. But we find this in many different areas. Um, if, if you think about, you know, our mortgage interest deduction, for instance, you have to own a home to actually take advantage of that. Uh, if you look at unemployment insurance, uh, you're paid some percentage of what you worked at before. If you look at Social Security, it's based, again, on your lifetime income. And again, you get paid more if you were paid more before. And so I think we should. Uh, and, and by the way, some of these programs have been uh, very effective in some ways, right? You could describe Social Security as being one of the best anti-poverty programs in American history. And so I think we can at the same time acknowledge those benefits, those good things that we get from some of these policies, and at the same time recognize and think about whether or not we should address some of the disparities that come from the very same programs. Staying on education, I'd like to bring in Kristen here. Uh, what is the role, if any, of economic literacy in the racial gap? 
So I think the, the first step is you have to think about how is school paid for? Uh, many students, particularly African-American students more than, than any other, take out student loans and they don't understand they don't understand the interest rates. They don't understand how they're going to have to pay that back or thinking about the income that they're going to make and what percentage of that on a monthly or annual basis they're, they're going to have to pay back. So I think that's the first step if we talk about financial literacy and higher education particularly. But it, it shouldn't start there. That, that needs to start in elementary school and high school that um, we can't just expect that parents are, are gonna teach their kids. What if the parents didn't go to college? What if they don't own a house, right? So we need to incorporate that into the education system at, at a much earlier phase so that people understand how higher ed is funded. Jeffrey, so McKinsey's report highlights that the responsibility of creating a more equitable economy can and should rely on employers leveraging an existing talent pool of black workers, something Leaders Up directly tries to accomplish. Can you talk to us about this unique emphasis on employer-led solutions and lay out the impact of placing the onus on the company rather than the individual? Well, I think it's important that companies um, in general get back into the game of human capital development, uh, because at the end of the day, when we look at the African-American population and the BIPOC population Broadly, what we're missing out on is is um, is hidden genius um, that should be tapped into in order to, and, and cultivated in order to um, really ensure that we're driving and delivering innovation. There's so many. There could be cures for cancer. There could be the next tech platform. There could be all types of opportunities, but it all relies around you know I think perspective from a perspective that pr the private sector must uh, communicate where the future of the sector is going and then align that with educational um, outcomes and pathways that allow folks to actually develop the skills and competency to be competitive in the marketplace. Um, it's important for demand-driven solutions that are connected to our economy um, be connected also to high-growth sectors. And even in the time of COVID-19, we need to be thinking at pan about pandemic-proof sectors that have actually grown during this uh, phase of crisis. So it's important that I think the private sector really gets back into the game of investing in human capital, which is America's most valuable asset, our diverse human capital and African-Americans being one of the major contributors to the economy of, of, of America's sense of existence. It's about time that private sector really moved beyond these statements as it relates to advancing racial justice to really making strategic investments upstream in education and downstream, even as we talk about just not getting African-Americans caught in these sticky floor glass ceiling scenarios of, um, that could be broken through with career pathways that are being explicated for African-Americans beyond by pri the private sector to move folks just from an academic and an uh, and a, uh, economic and last but a, a career standpoint up these career ladders. I'd like to stay on that topic about um about COVID-19 and how uh, the Black community is faring. Uh, Michael, how are Black women faring economically in COVID-19? It's been a tremendous challenge. Um, you know, there are other folks who in the healthcare community who can talk more in, in, in great detail about it, but certainly the health, health outcomes have been extraordinarily challenging um, in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. But also, I think you, you need to add in 
uh, particularly for women who, who share a disproportionate burden of, uh, you know, of child rearing, for instance, you know, not having, you know, you know already a, a, a challenge in terms of the accessibility of childcare, and then COVID exacerbating that. Um, uh, you know, you could argue that some of the progress that we've made uh, in terms of gender has been put back uh, by by a generation, and so that intersectional combination of challenges, um, you know, between racial inequality as well as as gender inequality. Um, uh, number one, we're difficult before, and number two, COVID has ma made much worse. As being part of the uh, reports on, um, as part of being one of the authors on the reports, Shelley, uh, did you want to also talk about how COVID has impacted Black America economically? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we we see both, and we think about it in terms of both lives first, like disproportionate death rates and infection. And we've seen that. And then on the livelihood side, you you mentioned it, Jennifer, at the outset, there are a few things happening. One is on the small business and medium business side, you see disproportionate suffering because of the industries that Black-owned businesses are in, which, by the way, is a function of a lack of access to capital, which drives those decisions into industries that are going to be more hit in these kinds of situations. Two, many more frontline and ironically essential workers who have to be in the fight to help us do things like go to the hospital and travel and go to grocery stores. These are chronic, these are jobs that are chronically underpaid and undersupported from a benefits perspective. And yet we're asking these people to be on the front line and they're disproportionately black. And then if you think about some of the disruption and furloughs, these are folks that are disproportionately economically fragile and don't have the ability to weather a two or a three or four week furlough. And the, the last thing I will say is this is not a surprise. The fact that the pandemic hit black Americans the way it did is not a surprise. We knew this at the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, I co-authored a piece in April of 2020 where we just laid out a set of hypotheses that we thought would play out. And one of the things that we found is if you look at the housing conditions that Black Americans live in, the density in the areas where they live, the lack of health care, we found that Black Americans were twice as likely to live in a place that would be dramatically more impacted by the pandemic. And if you actually look at, fast forward to how this thing has played out, it's played out exactly that way. And I say that not to, to say that we had a crystal ball, it's just that history repeats itself. When there are big national disasters or pandemics or other exogenous events, groups that are less economically secure get hit the hardest. And we've seen that here in this pandemic. Kristen, you talked about automation is really uh, become a very source, a huge source of concern for exacerbating the racial gap. Can you speak to that? So I think following up on, on what Shelley said, a lot of the jobs that he talks about also are at high risk of being automated. So if you think about cashiers, servers, um, not so much caretakers. So it's, it's not just lower paid jobs. Um, and I think sometimes people think that, but I want to add also to what Michael said. I have so many thoughts, but I think about black women being the caretakers, not just of children in their own households, but children everywhere and not just children, but um, elderly people, disabled people, 
um, all over, like black black women take care of this country, right? And so then going to what Shelly said, like we're overrepresented in many of these jobs that are lower wage, customer facing, put them at risk of getting COVID themselves and taking it home to their families and the communities that they take care of all for a job that has a high automation risk score, right? And so if we think about during the pandemic, just think about your, your local Walmart, and I'm not picking on Walmart, but Walmart, Target, CVS, Walgreens, think about how many human cashiers there were pre-COVID. And then think about if you go in there now, how many um, cashiers there are. And, and what do those people look like? Because for me, I mean, I've, I've traveled around the country, um, they're generally Black women, Black women and men, um, or, or Hispanic women and men, again, putting themselves at risk um, to take care of their families for a generally lower wage job that puts them at risk of getting COVID. And then following, you know, reopening, I'm not going to say post-COVID because we're not there yet, but when things start to reopen, those people aren't there, they're machines. And so now you got to check yourself out, right? So what are those people doing? And I think that companies are saying people aren't coming back to work, but if you have a machine, then what are they coming back to? And the people that, that used to be cashiers can't just automatically become bartenders or they don't automatically become order fillers, right? So I think that um, we need to stop blaming workers and start protecting them, particularly Black women. So what should a corporate CEO do at this juncture? What would be your best idea? My first thing is to stop saying that people won't come to work because they're lazy or because they're getting whatever government benefit. Um, provide childcare. I think about when I go to the gym, you can pay a, a few dollars extra um, for childcare, right? So. Couldn't we do that with these big companies? Couldn't um, couldn't some of these big companies provide childcare? And I'm not saying that they don't, but if they don't, couldn't they provide childcare? Um, ensure that their workers have a way to get to work. Every every city doesn't have public transportation. Um, every city's public transportation may not be safe, right? So ensure that people can get to the job, have childcare once they get there. Um, make sure that they're going to be safe, be it through vaccinations or masks or social distancing. I'm not a doctor, but, you know, make sure that they're safe when they get there. And then if there's training that they need, I'm not suggesting that there's a skills gap. I'm simply saying that if there are skills that they need, then partner with an HBCU, hopefully Dillard University, shout out, um, or an, MS, an MSI or a PWI. Um, because there are professors who train people for a living, right? So it's like there are plenty of people that can help corporations train people if they pay for it, right? So I think those are some things that um, that corporations can do to help people get back to work and make a living wage and be able to protect themselves and their families. So I'm going to ask the same question um, to Jeffrey. What should a corporate CEO do at this juncture? Well, a couple things. The first thing I think that a CEO should do is commit to anti-racism being a core value of corporate citizenship um, and being an anti-racist employer. And when I say that, really looking at closing racial disparities across education, compensation and benefits, employee, employment and career pathways, being very intentional about moving beyond compositional outcomes of how many black folks are hired or on the board of directors, et cetera, and really looking at things like pay disparities and closing that gap 
investing in education and aligning with the future of that sector. Like, like Crystal, uh, Kristen said, excuse me, building public-private partnerships because we have the ability to leverage the educational sector for reach, but also we have you know, the internal knowledge and intellectual property necessary to inform education so that folks are continuously on the cusp of the future of work and the, um, where the sector is going. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity to reimagine diversity, equity, inclusion, and start measuring what matters as relates to education, employment, compensation, and benefits. So there's some more rigor around the bottom line impact on the business as well as the employer brand internally from a cultural perspective and the employer brand externally to future um, talent that they want to attract. But at the end of the day, we have to move beyond statements around advancing racial justice and investments around uh, doing well by the community and being intentional about investing in an untapped pool of talent. Um, corporate CEOs are now at the time to choose if they want to be anti-racist and be metaphorically like Netflix or not and be like Blockbuster. When we look at the census data that we just received, we understand that African-American and BIPOC populations are increasing, which means they're going to continue to be contributors to, the, um, to our economy. So why not tap into that consumer base now? Why not bring that user into the company to inform products and services so that you're at the cutting edge of your sector. This is not just a moral thing to do, but it's also an economic and business uh, competitiveness strategy. So corporations and CEOs that are serious about competing in a global economy is going to take advantage of, I think, our most valuable asset, which is our diversity. So with your work, you get a front row seat to seeing systemic change uh, through, uh, you, you know, through Leaders Up. And I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite Leaders Up story of connected connecting talented, diverse job seekers to employers? There's so many, uh, Jennifer, but I think at the end of the day, um, one of my favorite projects that we're working on right now is with Google. And um, we know that the tech sector has traditionally recruited from some of the top universities um, that African-Americans and other BIPOC talent are not able to really enter from a financial perspective or even from just the you know, racialized admission standards associated with these institutions. Um, and Google has worked with a number of different nonprofits to take their internal on-the-job training programs and flip those out into career certificate programs that align with 15 of the uh, highest-growing um, occupational categories across the tech sector. And for me, that's significant because what they're doing is shifting from a racist, pedigree-driven talent acquisition strategy to a more competency-based strategy that allows folks to get the skills necessary to compete in the marketplace. And I think that as we look at some of the strategies that businesses can employ, you know, Google is a great example of that, of not just changing their own practices um, and through their foundation to drive more diverse talent, but also recruiting other businesses to actually um, lean into that talent pool and recruit as well um, and hire folks with those certifications. So actually driving a movement around innovation that disrupts racism and expands diversity. Um, this is one of my favorite opportunities that we're uh, advancing across the nation with Google um, because it really structurally challenges businesses to do better, um, as well as at the same time providing great opportunities uh, with career pathways for young adults and um, uh, learners across the nation that desperately need them. Shelley, let's talk about Black-owned businesses. 
how has COVID impacted black, black businesses in both launching and growing their businesses? Yeah, Jennifer, I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit b- before, but but obviously it's created a number of challenges for uh, existing businesses, uh, it, it, you know, depending on the sector that they're in because of just the mass disruption. And that's not just Black-owned businesses, although similar to the personal financial stories, Black-owned businesses tend to be less well-capitalized and therefore have a difficult time weathering any sort of disruption. So that's why you've seen some disproportionate shutdowns of, of those businesses and in terms of the, the go forward, I think one thing that's interesting, one, one potential silver lining, if we capitalize on it, is this moment of disruption seems to have catalyzed or, 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 or maybe brought to the surface more entrepreneurial effort and energy. Now, some of that may be out of necessity because some jobs went away. Uh, and, and, and some of it you know, may be because there have been a lot of corporate commitments from banks and other institutions to support better capitalization of these businesses. Now we're early days, but one thing that I'm seeing, at least anecdotally, is people are willing to take a bet on themselves because it feels like there's capital out there. And I mean, there's been north of, uh, if you include affordable housing, I mean, there's been north of probably $50 billion that's gone to capitalize small businesses and or fund investors who will then invest in Black-owned businesses. And so- I'm, I'm optimistic, but but it still is you know very much early days, but but huge opportunity. And one of the things that I hope will happen is that we use this opportunity in corporate America to really accelerate our vendor partner supplier diversity efforts, and we not only expand the the dollars being spent, like increase the dollars being spent, but we also expand the scope and the remit of the categories we're looking to. So it's not just for facilities, maintenance services, which is great. And we should be doing more of that with black owned businesses, but what are the black accounting firms, the black law firms, the black investment managers that we're going to bring into our ecosystem, the aggregate, all of corporate America. I mean, the the amount of spend that they have, I mean, can dramatically reshape the the landscape of who owns businesses in this country. And we are short by my math and Michael's math around 650,000 black owned businesses that should be in existence today if we were at fair share. And those businesses would be generating around $1.6 trillion of additional revenue. And those businesses would likely have a whole lot more black and brown employees than other businesses. And so it's a tremendous opportunity to unlock um, community investment and and, and really change the, the circumstance for a lot of people. Kristen, you said earlier you had a lot to say. Did you want to add to what Shelley uh, remarked on? Yeah, so I, I think um, my my boss Andre Perry um, focuses a lot on small businesses and and building um, assets in, in black communities, and so I think that um, Shelley is right that that when we think about black owned businesses. More of them are sole proprietorships. Um, they're focused in in businesses that, that Shelley talked about, like in hospitality or in office cleaning, for instance, um, moving services, um, cleaning homes, things of that nature, um, cosmetology, right? And so we need to encourage um, more African-American people to go into to businesses outside of those areas. But again, it's not just, hey, you should start an accounting firm where 
you know, you should start a law firm or you should start your own architectural firm. It's like, okay, how do I do that? Right. So I think, um, I think that starts again in elementary school, right. Telling young black and brown students that you can do anything and not just saying it, but making it, making it possible because it's like, I could go and get a degree in biology or engineering um, and accumulate a whole bunch of loans. And then what, like when I go to try to get a business loan and I face discrimination at the bank because there's not a black owned bank or a black banker at the bank that I can go to. How am I supposed to get this loan? And who taught me how to to do a business plan? And who am I supposed to work with that's not going to take advantage of me, right? So I think Shelly is absolutely right. And we also need to start early and provide these wraparound services so that people actually can start the businesses for the ideas that they have. Um, I think I've been a a business dean twice at HBCUs and um, at each one that that I've worked at and I've worked at a bunch, there's always some class where I have students do a a business plan, right? And the majority of them, their first idea is I'm going to start a fill in the blank service that's going to sort of be a nonprofit to help my community, right? So it could be a, 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 barbershop that offers free haircuts to students, which is great, but we need to, to broaden the perspective so that, that our students know that, yes, those ideas are great and we need them, but you can also do all of these other things that they've not yet been exposed to. I see you shaking your head, Michael. Did you want to chime in? Just the, the tremendous opportunities that we see here. Uh, you know, Shelby is alluding to only 2% of employer businesses, businesses that employ at least one employee are black owned versus, you know, the 13% of the U.S. population. And, and as, you know, Jeffrey was alluding to, talent is widely distributed, opportunity is not. Uh, and if you could distribute that opportunity better through access to capital, you know, all of these other things we've been talking about, you could just greatly increase, you know, the the level of successful black entrepreneurship. Uh, and And, you know, that's, I think that's our our hope uh, for the future. So the report touches on consumer deserts and black neighborhoods. Can you define that phrase for our audience and explain how that economically impacts the black community? Yeah, we looked at, uh, you know, another role that Shelly mentioned before is is the role of black consumers. Um, And we discovered two types of disparities. And one of them you were referring to, we described them as access disparities. And um, you know a, a, a term that's used often in the in, uh, in the analysis are, are deserts. Um, some of these are, are uh, analogies with deserts, obviously. So if you talk about a food desert, it describes the distance between where you live and a grocery store, for instance. Uh, housing deserts are defined slightly differently in terms of the you know whether or not you're rent burdened, et cetera. But it, it just reflects the access that you have. Um, to goods and services that um, you know you, you could have access to and need in many cases as a consumer, and I think as we alluded to earlier in the conversation, one of the things that's happened is we we not only notice these disparities with regard to income, household income, how much you make for going to work, but also that the costs of these things, which are essential in life, whether it's housing, food, healthcare, those costs have actually been increasing, and particularly uh, for Black households and Black families. And so, you know, the, 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 the deserts analysis is basically a location-specific analysis of if you look at where Black people live, 
how accessible are things like healthcare? How accessible is broadband? How accessible is fresh food? And so what we see there are these disparities where a far higher percentage of, of black people live in places where access to these types of goods and services, which are necessary for life, um, is more challenging. By the way, if I could just add real quick, the other analysis that we did was, you know, you might think, well, the reason that these stores aren't here is because you can't make money doing it. Um, and as you might know, uh, you know, we are part of a management consulting firm that looks and tries to help businesses. We analyzed if you put some grocery stores in some of these quote food deserts, they in fact can drive the type of foot traffic uh, that can make them a viable business. And so, you know, this is a question of opening the eyes of 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 consumer business executives to saying, look, you can actually, um, you know, do good uh, and make money doing it. So we've got a couple minutes before we take audience questions, but I wanted to talk to Jeffrey again about what companies do you think are doing it right when it comes to inclusion? Uh, you brought up Google. Any other companies that come to mind? Um, absolutely. We work with about 200 plus companies across the nation right now. And, um, you know, everybody does a lot of work to do in moving beyond diversity, equity, inclusion to a state of anti-racism where you're proactively dismantling systems and policies, people management strategies that are exacerbating racialized disparities. I think the reality is, is that when I think about some of the partners that we have, like Bank of America, that is focusing with us around driving fair chance employment and rallying employers around ensuring that you know, folks that are re-entering citizens have access to career pathways that provide the type of economic stability that curbs recidivism is a great example. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase is a tremendous investor and leaders up and is really putting jet fuel behind us, organizing employers to build innovative public-private partnerships with the education system to ensure that the education system is leveraged to expand the learning and development infrastructure of their own uh, company and other companies to continue to um, educate and equip folks to be competitive in the marketplace. Um, we're doing some work with Twitter right now and, and leveraging their reimagining how employee resource groups are utilized as the center points of social capital. And I think a theme across all of our comments today is that social capital is very critical. It's social capital that allows you to get access to a meeting to become a diverse supplier with a major Fortune 500 company. It's those relationships. It's social capital that allows you to understand what you need to learn and who you need to na uh, navigate with in a business to move through. Uh, to move up the corporate ladder as well. Um, it's social capital that allows you to have access to programs and other resources that allow you to be exposed to what sectors and industries are actually uh, providing. So I think that at the end of the day, there's a lot of work for corporate America to do when, at the end, uh, when we are speaking about just the wage gap in general. When African Americans are making 77 cents on the dollar of a white man, then there is a lot of work to do. Um, and that doesn't take a three-year plan or a five-year plan. That just takes you ensuring that you're committed to it. And then from a standpoint, don't say that the cost is going to go to the consumer. Work on efficiency. Be more effective in how you operate your business. You save tw two cents across the enterprise strategy. That's tremendous savings that can go to the bottom line and in investing in the real tremendous uh, incremental growth that needs to happen around corporations really valuing African-American talent. Kristen. I would just say that I agree with all of those things. Um, 
But I think I, I want to add um, Toyota. So I think about Toyota Motor Manufacturing in Georgetown, Kentucky, where they partnered with Kentucky State University to do a paid internship for students who would get a, a pre-engineering degree from Kentucky State and then go on to the University of Kentucky. And once they finish that program, if they successfully completed it, they'd almost be guaranteed um, a job with Toyota. I think about um, I think about Europe. I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Europe, but they they do a program where students do an internship program. They get training. They're funded by a corporation, and then that corporation hires them. Europe and Atlanta had a partnership with Atlanta Metropolitan State College, where those same students could get an associate degree or a certificate. So I think that for corporations to not just do training, not just want to hire African-American and Hispanic populations, but to partner with schools and other organizations like the Kingsley House in, in New Orleans to really create a, a pipeline for students to be successful. And not just students, but people that are already in the labor force, but may need some more training or education in order to move to the next step. So corporations don't have to do it all on their own, um, but we do need to create these pipelines for students and people who are already in the workforce to be able to move forward. Shelley, in your uh, wonderful exhaustive report, you talked about some solutions. Uh, do you want to walk us through that? Was that your way, Jennifer, saying it was too long? I get that. I got the point. I, I, I know not many people <laughs> no, got no. to page 149 or whatever it was. Yeah, it's Michael's fault. Um he, he, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, look, I, I think I don't want to purport to say that 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 we have the answer. And I think my my colleagues on this panel um, have have discussed a lot of the different solutions. I, I think what I would say is what I'm very focused on right now is how do we hold organizations, my own institution included, accountable for the commitments that we have already made in the last 18 months. Because it th th there has been, as I said, not only capital commitments to do things like support affordable housing, support educational programs, support minority-owned businesses, the, the laundry list, the full list of things that need fixing, but also commitments to make our own firms more diverse and, to Jeffrey's point, inclusive. And I'm very focused with all of my clients on, on, on having the discussion of how are we measuring, tracking, and modifying our behavior to ensure that these commitments are having impact. That's one. And the second thing is, how do we drive greater collaboration and more energy towards initiatives? One of the things that I think the movement, if you will, struggles from is fragmentation. On the one hand, fragmentation is outstanding and that you can incubate lots of ideas. On the other hand, good ideas that work sometimes get lost because they're not able to get the scale they need. And so to the extent that there's lots of coalitions that have been formed, and I think they're all great. How can we find opportunities to work together and really go after two or three things in two and three year increments and try to make real progress? And so that, that, that's what I would encourage us to, to do from a solution perspective is I think we know the landscape and what needs to get done. How do we actually organize ourselves 
to go do that and ensure that the resources are spent in ways that are high ROI because those opportunities are there. Michael? Same question. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, I, I, my, in general, I just I say yes to what Shelly says. No, I, it's just, uh, seriously, I mean, I, I, I think there uh, are so this many is, This is the first panel that everyone's in agreement on everything across the board. <laughs> we can talk about automation more, but anyway, <laughs> I, 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 I think across all of these different roles, there you know, are, are real things. Now, I, as, as Shelly mentioned, I think at least, you know, I think we approach it with some humility because this is not the first time people have identified some of these issues. And we have seen decades of people working very, very hard on these things. And so if this, if this could be solved tomorrow, I, you know, it, 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 um, I, I wish it would be. I'll, I'll come back to another thing that uh, my colleague Shelley said, right? We talked about essential workers and Tristan, you mentioned it as well, right? I, I would like to see us pay essential workers as essential workers um, if they truly are essential. And, if, and as a benchmark, let's look at how much those people, those roles are paid in other parts of the country, you know, if you compare it or across countries. Um, and I think that's a, that's a worthwhile comparison to make because it, truly, if, if these people are essential, if they're keeping us alive, if they're educating our children, if they're taking care of our loved ones, um, uh, that, 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 that to me sounds like something that's worthwhile uh, and, and worth paying for. Kristen, I wanted to, uh, before we take questions, I wanted to actually ask you the last question. Um, I, you know, you've done a lot of work at Brookings. What has been a success story in your mind? Um, you've really gotten involved in the community. I'm just really um, curious uh, if there is a success story that you can share with us. So the, the UNCF, the United Negro College Fund, um, created a, a career pathways initiative where they funded um, programs at, at four different HBCUs. And the whole point of it is for these HBCUs to create ideas for students to move into the future of work, to actually create pathways. Not that the UNCF or, or their funder said, you know, dictated, this is what we're going to do. No, they left it up to the, the professors to say, what is the gap? Like, what do students need to, um, to be able to make it in, in the future of work, right? And so I think through my work at Brookings and through doing research and, and talking to folks at McKinsey and, and other places to figure out what do students need to know and be able to do to, to come to your company? Like, don't just come to a job fair or post an internship because we don't know what you really want. Some professors have, have worked in the field, some haven't in a long time, right? So what we did was we bought Stata, right? Because we didn't have Stata. We had been teaching statistics without it, right? And so students need to know Stata if they're going to get a job at these particular corporations. They need to know Tableau. They need to know Excel. They need to know these particular things in Excel, right? And so UNCF didn't say, this is how we want you to spend the money. We could spend it to bridge the gap in the way that corporations told us that we needed to, right? So I think more individual partnerships don't just show up to try to hire students at, at any school. Go and really talk to the professors, look at the curriculum, have these sort of meetings, right? Do the students need suits or computers or bus passes or 
art supplies, I don't know, right? Whatever the corporation is trying to hire students for, make sure that schools are teaching the students those things and that they have the resources to be able to do it. So I think that that is a success story because now Diller is preparing students for jobs that we know exist. Thank you so much. So we're going to get questions from the audience right now. And the first one, what's your view on reparations for Black Americans? What should they look like? How should they be distributed? And and do you think it will happen in our lifetimes? Uh, Jeffrey. Oh, you know, big picture, um, I'm just going to have to underscore what Kristen is saying. It's like reparations for me looks like funding the HBCUs tremendously to impact Black talent. Um, That is a system that we have where we can channel Black thought, Black history, Black culture, uh, and start to repair a lot of the traumatic um, impact that America has had on Black people since they set foot on soil here. And I think it's important for us to invest in the HBCUs in a way that allows it to be free for Black folks that allows us to lift up Black intellect, Black innovation. That's where we'll have the capacity to build out powerhouse business schools, to partner with corporations. We'll have the capacity to build out, you know, other types of educational opportunities that allow African-Americans to have the skills to compete and the social capital, more importantly, to build our communities. Like, give me the HBCUs debt-free with a commitment of a billion-plus dollars uh, that can be that can build these endowments that put them on par with endowments like the Ivy Leagues, so that we can ensure that Black talent, whether that be academic talent, whether that's athletic talent, then comes a whole bunch of different opportunities to generate revenue. I went to UCLA, not an HBCU, but I was astounded to know that the athletic director at UCLA made more than a chancellor. And the reason why the athletic director made more than a chancellor because he they increased the revenue for and the funds for that uh, for our institution. So think about if we have the Black athletic talent at our HBCUs and be able to sustain these HBCUs to grow the type of flexible resources necessary to be powerhouse global institutions of thought and innovation. So that's what I would do. Kristen, I see you smiling. What's your view on reparations for Black Americans? I'm going to agree with what Jeffrey said, but I'm going to say it a little bit differently and maybe controversially, but I have tenure at Dillard, so hopefully won't nobody get mad at Brookings. But I'm going to say free, free all of what Jeffrey just said for descendants of slavery. Okay, I'm I'm for all people being able to go to school for free. But if we're talking about reparations, who should it go to? It should go to the people that were enslaved. Okay, so so that's one. And then yes to everything else that that Jeffrey just said. The next thing is that we not only need more banks in Black communities, we need more Black-owned banks. I think about when I was growing up in Chicago. And my mother took me to Seaway National Bank, where Jacoby Dickinson was the, the president, a black man. Um, and, and there were a few other, you know, community banks, but they're not really there anymore, right? Like we've seen a, a drastic decline in black-owned businesses and and how many branches they have um, over the last thirty years, over the last hundred years. So we don't just need Wells Fargo and Chase and the other big banks to come into our communities. We do, but we need our own banks, right? Because we're not going to discriminate against each other, right? We live in these communities. 
Um, we need other methods other than just credit scores to be able to decide who gets a loan. We need funding for that through reparations. We need reparations to fix the, the food deserts and, and the business deserts that, that Michael talked about. We don't just need businesses like Kroger, Jewel, Publix to come into to our neighborhoods. We need our own grocery stores, right? Like we need to see more black owned businesses and, and a wider variety of, of industries in black communities employing black people so that we can support ourselves rather than, than needing reparations, right? Like if it wasn't for discrimination and slavery, we could have taken care of ourselves, right? So, so make up for that and let us do that. I would love to get your thoughts on this, Shelley. Uh, perfect. I was going to try to stay on mute, but um, no, look, so I, I, um, I'm not an expert on reparations, right? That's just not, I, I just haven't spent a lot of time on the specific topic as it's kind of characterized in, you know, in, in a lot of the discussion, but I, I am, I am largely where Jeffrey's articulation is, which is there is no question that substantial investment needs to be made in black communities if we're going to address the mobility challenges and close the wealth gap. And I think that investment has to come from a mix of the social, public, and private sector. And I'll let, we can debate the exact form of that, but that capital needs to flow. And I, and I, and I want to lift up this point about HBCUs because, you know, despite being underfunded, having smaller endowments, being often neglected, they are still doing disproportionate work in terms of educating Black Americans. They represent 3% of the degree-granting institutions, that is HBCUs, but they award 17% of the bachelor's degrees to Black Americans, 25% of the STEM degrees. Imagine if these institutions had real at-scale funding and support. Imagine what, what what could be unlocked. And I think further... It, I think HBCUs actually play a bigger role than just education for bachelor's degrees and, and, and advanced degrees. These institutions are located, we've done the mapping, they are located in places that have very low economic mobility. That is, it's very hard to be born poor and move up, but these institutions have tremendous capacity. They can absorb capital and ideas and help be a broader catalyst for the communities that they're in. And so I do think starting to reimagine the role that HBCUs play, not just in direct education, but as accelerators in the communities where they're located, I think is, is, is really, really important. And the one thing I will say is oftentimes we anchor on, you know, the slavery as the kind of source of the wealth gap, but I think it's also important in contemporary context to remember that we as a country also made deliberate choices to create wealth that Black people were excluded from in the, you know, in the, in the 20th century, right? So I just, and I think that that, that, that one is important. It's hard for people to, to grasp, but if you don't allow a set of people to participate in a large wealth creation uh, moment like you know, owning homes through leverage that's provided by the government and by banks, well, you can't then say 30 years later, well, why are you all so far behind, right? Because every year, $300 billion of inheritance is missing in the Black community, 
relative to what it would be at fair share because we didn't participate in sponsored wealth creation moments in this country. And so it's important context as we look forward and think about you know, how we address some of this, these challenges through targeted investment in Black communities. We've got a lot of uh, questions here. I'm going to ask Michael, how can, should, how can or should employees hold their companies accountable in creating anti-racist workplace culture and hiring practices? Well, you, it's hard. I mean, what, one thing is in aggregate, people will choose where, where they're going to work. Uh, and, you know, nothing counts, uh, you know, like voting with your feet. At the same time, people don't have complete freedom. Um, we do have to put food on table. And so that's true, too. Um, but again, you know, various organizations are pushing for transparency. Um, people can organize themselves. And I'm not necessarily saying organized labor, but, but that has, in, in some cases, been a, a, a vector for, for change. In some cases, been a vector, unfortunately, uh, in the opposite direction as well. But nevertheless, um, you know, I, I think there are a number of different ways in which employees, um, you know, can can continue to to advocate. Uh, and by the way, it it is not just uh, black people who should be advocating for black people. Um, uh, that you know, we have a phrase in our report, right? That a more equitable economy for black Americans is a more dynamic and inclusive economy for all Americans. Um, this matters for everyone. And so I think all of those things, um, you know, are, are important in the workplace. Um, but at the same time, this can't, again, also only be on, on the backs of employees, um, the managers, the executives. Uh, and fortunately, we, we're hearing more and more of them say this matters as well uh, for the competitiveness reasons that Jeffrey mentioned. That's a great point. Another question. Is there any data on how COVID has affected the LGBTQ Black communities? Anyone wants to take that? I'm sure there is. I just don't have it right to hand. I apologize. Yeah. Shelley, were you going to say something? No, no. I, I said I'm, I'm, I'm certain that there, there are some organizations looking at that. We, we, didn't, we didn't have that, uh, that, that data cut in, in the analysis that we did. Okay. Another question from the audience, Jeffrey, what advice would you give to the younger BIPOC generations entering the workforce? I would ensure that um, young people tap into, especially BIPOC young people, tap into what I think is their differentiator, which is their hustle factor. Um, you're already resilient based upon the conditions that you've grown up in and have, st- and have survived. And now it's time to figure out how to thrive. And that's really in building relationships, De- demonstrating what you can do, but also building relationships. So what you do is showcase um, because relationships, mentorship, sponsorship, those types of uh, connections is really what pulls folks up the corporate ladder and across career pathways. Um, I think at the end of the day for young adults, it is like it is a new uh, terrain. So learn as much as you can. Uh, Utilize tuition benefits. It's one of the most underutilized benefits out there to finance education. Uh, Because don't be like me and have three degrees and be strapped in (laughs) in student loan debt. You know, that's a big piece as well um, that we have to think about around economic mobility for Black students, as Kristen mentioned earlier on. But, But at the end of the day, it's like learn as much, work hard and work smart by building relationships with people that look like you and those who don't look like you in in, in higher ranks that can help you navigate through corporations in your industry. I'd love to get your thoughts, Kristen. So I think my my two main things are if someone recommends you for something or offers you an opportunity that you're interested in, take them up on it. 
Um, I think one of the things that I found at, at many schools that I've worked at, not just HBCUs, that I will recommend a student for something and they'll say, oh, you know, Dr. Rody, I'm not sure that I'm ready for that. And it's like, if I'm recommending you, I know that you're ready, right? So when somebody recommends you for something, again, if it's something that you don't want to do, that's one thing. But, but have confidence in yourself and your skills and take them take the person up on the offer. Um, the, the other thing that I would say on the other end is be ready to lead. And so I think some of that goes to what Jeffrey said, right? That if you have a network, then you have people to recommend you if the, the job or the situation that you're in no longer suits you or you it. So save as much money as you possibly can, if that's possible. And I know that it's not possible for everybody. Um, have a network. Try not to burn bridges so that if you need to leave a place, you can, right? We all can't walk, like Michael said, but try to prepare yourself to do that, even if not at the beginning of your career later on, so that you don't have to stay at a place that you don't want to be or that doesn't want you there. The hustle factor and your great advice, take the recommendation. Uh, thank you to our audience for all your great questions. Before we officially wrap, it is a tradition here to ask all our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? I'm interested to hear yours, Kristen. Gender and racial equality. End the discrimination. I don't know how you do it, but end it. Well, my big idea is... Um just to, to, to build an anti-racist economy, um, because we know that the anti-racist economy is going to be a, a more inclusive one and a more profitable one. Um, but beyond that, I would challenge corporate America, um, especially those that did not pay federal taxes, to take 10% of your federal tax break and invest it in a fund for Black America that's run by Black people to invest in our community. Shelley. Sure, and this is this is Shelley, not not necessarily you know, on behalf of my firm, but but I think... The the idea focused on the U.S. for me is we have to disconnect starting wealth and family income from education and adequate health care. And I think we need to particularly in particular do it for our children. The the productivity benefits to society of investing early in kids who are being underinvested in both in terms of their education and the quality of their health care will pay off. So it will pay off. Will pay huge dividends in the future, and we can make that choice. We we could other places have done it. We can make a different choice than what we've chosen today. And Michael, apologies for repeat. Pay essential workers for how much we value them. Thank you to Shelley Stewart the Third, Michael Chewy, Dr. Kristen Brody, and Jeffrey Wallace for joining me today at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual program and making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org/online. I'm Jennifer Blonde. Thank you so much, and stay safe. You've been listening to a podcast of Inform, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at informsf.org.